Jesus Christ is our living hope, and we are celebrating the resurrection today. Stay up, stay up. I haven't lost you yet. Don't just assume there's a transition to seating here. That's not the way it is. No, before you sit, I just want to let you know, for 2,000 years, believers have been gathering and pastors have been standing before a congregation saying, He is risen. And congregations have been answering, He is risen indeed. Let's keep that tradition alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. All right, that's great. Now, sit down. Thanks. We're so glad that you're here. We celebrate the resurrection because we believe it's true. And if it's true, it has implications on each one of our lives. Now, I understand some people here don't believe it's true. We're going to talk about that. But as as we get to that, I just want us to look at a passage of Scripture that details the resurrection for us uh, in detail. It's Luke 24, beginning in verse 1. And these are when some ladies went to the tomb that first Easter Sunday morning. And it goes like this. But on that first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now, they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they wouldn't believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. We celebrate the resurrection because we believe that it's true. And sometimes that's information that connects some dots. I remember when I was a teenager, 14 or 15 years old, I, I must have been wearing on my parents. They must have been tired of me because they allowed me to volunteer for an organization that was building the Colorado Trail in Colorado. And we, we lived in Colorado, but they took me up to a mountain pass where I caught a ride up to a ranger station and then I had a pack with, uh, with uh, a, an old army mess kit in it, a tent, and enough dehydrated food to feed me for two weeks. Weighed 98 pounds. I show up at the ranger station. There were three of us volunteers working with the rangers. And we went up into the high country and we started basically connecting parts of paths to other trails in order to connect it all together. And, and our job was to cut a four-foot by 10 foot section just out through the wilderness so packers could go with pack horses and and riders and just cut that through. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. We camped on the trail 
and just loved it. I worked on three different sections of the Colorado Trail during those two weeks. And, uh, but the thing is, although I worked on those sections, since that time, I've never been back to follow the trail to where it leads, to follow the trail to the end. It's over 200 miles long. Someday, I would like to do that. But I think some of you are kind of in the same spot with Jesus and the resurrection. You know some stuff. You've maybe connected a few dots. But I want you to connect all the dots so you can take this information to its logical conclusion. And that's what I hope to accomplish with you today. Now, I just read from Luke. And Luke wrote his book. He's one of four what we call gospel writers, the first four books in the New Testament. And they recorded the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luke wrote within 30 years of the resurrection. And I know some people would push back on, on what Luke said. But if you want to push back on Luke, it's a little tougher than you think. He not, not only wrote within 25 years, of, or, I'm sorry, 30 years of the resurrection... He also states in his book that he was gathering eyewitness accounts to record exactly what happened during Jesus' life. I mean, it's not a conspiracy theory. I mean, it's not like just some guy comes up with some crazy things that people start believing. Luke was just one of the gospel writers. As a matter of fact, more convincing than Luke is Mark. Mark wrote his book. Mark was the assistant to Peter and ministered with Peter and Mark just recorded what Peter saw and remembered from the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So he's an even better witness. But even better than that are the remaining two first century gospel writers. That's Matthew and John because Matthew and John were eyewitnesses through the entire ministry, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And they recorded how not only did Jesus predict his death, but they just weren't getting it. That three days later he rose again. He walked the planet for another 40 days, appearing to people, and then in front of the disciples ascended up to heaven. And, and so that's some pretty convincing evidence. But if even that wasn't enough, let me throw out something else to you. There's a man who was named Saul who came to be known as Paul, he's an even more convincing witness because Paul didn't start out as a follower of Jesus. He was an enemy to the movement of Christ. But actually, at a later time, the resurrected Christ appeared to him, and he became a believer. And coming across the resurrected Christ was the last thing that Paul wanted to do. That's the last thing he wanted and then Paul, three years after his conversion, he traveled to Jerusalem to talk to Peter as an eyewitness himself. He went to Jerusalem, he met Peter, also met James while he was there. And then he, he got to sit down with Peter and talk about how it was to be with Jesus all through his ministry. What a conversation that would have been. Hey, what'd you guys talk about around the campfire? What'd you talk about when you're traveling here to there? And then he, he went out. Paul did, and then more and more people who weren't Jewish people, un-Jewish people, non-Jewish people were called Gentiles, and more and more Gentiles started believing in Jesus. 
After 14 years of ministry, he returned back to Jerusalem to report, hey, everything that's happening. And when when he went to Jerusalem this time, he met with Peter, James, and John. And he said, hey, this is what I'm telling people about the hope that Jesus offers. And they listened to what he had to say, and they said, we were there. Paul, you're spot on. You're exactly right. Keep preaching it. Keep teaching it. That's exactly what happened. Paul went on to write 13 books in the New Testament. And I know sometimes when I throw out stuff, 13 books in the New Testament, then we know there's an Old Testament, and the Bible's got a lot of stuff in it. But it all really points to this. But wouldn't it be great if Paul, for example, in 13 books, wouldn't it be great if we just got Paul and said, hey, Paul, can you just simplify this? Can you just get this down to one paragraph about what started the whole movement of Christianity? That'd be great. And that's actually exactly what Paul did in a book called 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was written 25 years after the resurrection. And in verse 15, he gets back to basics to teach us just that kernel of what started the worldwide Christian movement, the resurrection of Jesus. I'd like to read some of that for you. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 3. It says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then, then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. He gives us a snapshot, this back to basics, and as he writes this, he's giving us something that we need today. He's giving you something. He's giving you, first of all, evidence for your mind. He's giving you answers for your heart. First of all, I want to talk about the evidence for your mind. So we know that all four gospel writers and the other writers of the New Testament, they're all saying that they all saw the resurrected Christ. But a lot of people push back and they say, no, I'm not really buying that. You know, I I don't believe it. But, But here's the deal. The resurrection either happened or it didn't happen. If it didn't happen, that means the apostles, the disciples, made up the story. They just made it up. But there is evidence that we can find inside the Bible and outside the Bible that they did not make it up. And that's what I want us to see today. First of all, evidence from inside the Bible. Not just that it's true what they were saying, because the New Testament's filled with the resurrection, but how we know, how we can see evidence inside the Bible that they did not make this story up. And, And I'll give you some examples of that. First of all, in all four Gospels, in all four life stories of Jesus, they mention that the very first witnesses to the resurrection were women. 
in the story we read, there were some angels there too. But, but the, the first humans, there, they, they were women. And, and why we know they wouldn't make that up that way is because in all three cultures at play in the first century, which was the Jewish culture, the Roman culture, and the Greek culture, that's why they spoke Greek, all three of those cultures were sexist in the first century. All three cultures did not view women as reliable witnesses, and women could not testify in court. So if you're going to make up a story about the resurrection, the last thing that you, could, you would do would be mentioned that women were the first witnesses. In the first century, you just wouldn't do that. All four of them did that. That's not all. All four gospel writers tell us that there was a man named Joseph of Arimathea who bravely went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body after he died on the cross. This is a man who goes to Pilate, the governor who put Christ to death, and asks him for the body of somebody who's just been executed as a criminal. Now what's weird about this is that Joseph of Arimathea was a Jewish religious leader. He was actually a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the high court that condemned Jesus of blasphemy, of saying that he was God, and instigated the whole trial situation where they manipulated Rome, Pilate, into putting Jesus to death. Well, in the first century, there was huge animosity between followers of Christ and Jewish leadership because they were the ones that got Rome to crucify their Messiah. So no way, if this is not true, do they make up a story and make one of the religious Jewish leaders, make one of them a hero who bravely goes to Pilate, claims Jesus' body so he can give Jesus an honorable burial in his own tomb, which was very well known because he was a very rich man. They would never do that. They were, they were angry at the Jewish leaders. Not only that, you have the whole issue of a tomb because um, the tomb did belong to Joseph of Arimathea. It was a well-known tomb and a well-known place. And all that had to happen as, as the people were telling about the resurrection, just produce the body. And Christianity would have died that moment. Just show the body. That's what the religious leaders would have do, done if they could. And by the way, in history, there's no competing tradition about what happened to Christ's body. There's no other story. This is it. Christianity, the only religion in the world who has a religious leader who died and his tomb is not venerated. Only religion. You see, that's a difference. One of the many differences between Christianity and every other religion. But not only that, we have the whole implication of all the appearances of Jesus. That's what Paul's mentioning in 1 Corinthians. Paul's just mentioning some of the examples, but just in the examples that he mentions, there are three individuals and three groups of people that saw him at once. Okay, well... And he's naming these people and he's saying, they're still alive. It's 25 years later. Go check it out. Let me name them. Just like he named three of the women. He's saying, go check it out. This is what, this is investigative. Hey, check it out. It's evidence. And so we see 
this implication of people seeing Jesus. And it could, some people say, well, hey, that was just wishful thinking. Maybe they were dreaming. Maybe they were hallucinating. There are no group dreams. There are no group hallucinations where hundreds of people see the same thing. That does not happen. And it's not wishful thinking, even for individuals, because at least one of those individuals seeing Jesus, as I mentioned before, was the last thing that he wanted to see. Because he was persecuting followers of Jesus, and that would be Paul. So that's, that's what we call internal evidence, not just that the resurrection happened. They're saying that all the time. Internal evidence that they didn't make up the story because they would have never made it up that way. But there's also evidence outside the Bible. I know every, a lot of people that have issues with the Bible, although archaeologically we can prove that it was all written in the first century and it's been reliably handed down. No problem there. Science is catching up with this. But evidence outside the Bible, well, what would that be? Well, after the resurrection, in history we know that all of Jesus' disciples, the 11 remaining disciples, all of them were willingly tortured. They were all willingly tortured, and 10 of them put to death. They, they were all tortured, and, and they were all willing to die rather than recant what they knew to be true, rather than to say it was a lie. And here's the deal. Sometimes people end up dying for a cause or something that's a lie. That happens. But never do groups of people die for what they know to be a lie. That makes no sense. This is evidence from outside of Scripture. Skeptics. Uh, of Jesus before the resurrection became followers of Jesus after the resurrection. Paul, also James, Jesus' half-brother. And, and here's the deal. Every serious historian of world history can tell you that something happened around 30 A.D. that turned the world upside down and swept through the Roman Empire like a tsunami. For example, thousands of Jewish people, thousands of Jewish people, Jewish people who had been worshiping God on the Sabbath for over 1,000 years suddenly started worshiping God on another day, on Sunday. Rather than Saturday, started worshiping God on Sunday, even though they had been doing that for 1,000 years. Why? Tens of thousands of Jewish people who for over a thousand years understood God as one, and they were absolutely right in that, but they changed their belief that God is one in essence, but he is also three in persons, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That changed drastically, even though they had all, all seen it one way for over a thousand years. And then there's the spread of Christianity. Well, what's so remarkable about that? Religion spread. Christianity spread at a time in the world where Christians were being persecuted. Remember what's happening in Rome at this time. In Rome, hey, people, people are dying. In Rome, to entertain the crowds, first, 
Caesar emptied out the prisons and, and killed all the criminals. And when he ran out of prisoners, who did he turn to next? The Christians. And Christians were ushered into the Colosseum. And they were willing to die for, them, for their faith. Well, look at Paul. Paul was stoned. Paul was beaten. Paul was whipped. Eventually, Paul was beheaded outside of Rome. Paul believed what he was saying. We see all this in history outside of Scripture. Every single layer of society was impacted by the resurrection. So if you're here and you don't believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus, okay, but what's your explanation of the greatest upheaval in the world that happened in 30 A.D.? Because if you're, and by the way, we're glad you're here, but, but you need to kind of square with that. If your argument is that the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus did not happen, we're glad you're here, but that's not a fail safe argument because the evidence stands against it. Evidence inside the Bible, evidence outside the Bible. What, what, I, what I want to avoid for you is knowing a little about something, but not enough to avoid disaster in your life. As a matter of fact, that's what, what's happened to me. It's, one of the, it's, it's like my most embarrassing story. You want to hear it? Okay, six of you want to hear it, but I'm, I'm going with it. <laughs> I've had a lot of different jobs. I was in banking for a while. I was in construction for a while. I baked cookies for a while, but... But one of my jobs was an emergency medical technician, an EMT. I was an EMT. I drove an ambulance, and I worked for a college campus, a university. And one day, I got a call that there was this girl on the third floor, and she was very sick. And so I headed over to the dorms. Now, this was a Christian university, so the dorms were divided, male and female. This happened to be a girl's dorm. So what that meant in that day was that I met the resident assistant called an RA, I met her at the door of the dorm and then she escorted me up through all three floors. And in this school, the way that happened was when I hit the floor, she would yell, man on the floor! In case any girls, you know, were out in the hallway when they shouldn't be or whatever. And then, of course, every time she yelled that, about 75 girls stuck their head out the door to see, you know, what's going on here. So, man on the floor. So, the first floor, the man on the floor, second floor, man on the floor, third floor. And I get into the room, and this is happening, it's just a, a spectacle. And I get there, and I find this young lady, and she is just drenched in sweat. And her eyes are glassy. She looks sick. I quickly take her vitals. While I'm doing that, girls are just pouring into the room, concerned friends. And the room is not that big. There's like 50 girls in here. They're just streaming in. While I'm taking her vitals, I find out she has seen the doctor, the campus doctor that day. So I'm like, oh, great, because I don't have a clue. So I get on the phone with the doctor, and, and I know him, and he's saying, hey, well, did you ask her if she took her medicine that I gave her today? And so I'm saying, hey, did, did you take the medicine? And she says, no. I said, well, and I said, no, she hadn't taken the medicine. He goes, you make sure she takes it right now, and she'll be better. And I'm like, okay. And so I said, where's the medicine? And she points to her nightstand, and I grab this pill bottle, 
And I'm like, well, you got to take this. I asked one of the many spectators in the room to go grab a glass of water. Go grab a glass of water. She needs to take this. And then I pop this pill bottle open, and I'm like, whoa, no wonder you haven't taken this medicine. These are like horse pills. And I'm just like, wow, okay. And then the water comes in. I get one of the pills out, and, I, and I'm, I'm kneeling by the bed with the ERA. And, and again, we're, there's a crowd of 50 witnesses all around us, and I'm like, you got to take this medicine. And, and she kind of goes, what do you mean? I'm saying, you got to take the medicine. And she says, you mean now? And I say, yes, now, right now, you've got to take this. And the resident assistant leans over to me and says, it's a suppository. I actually don't know what a suppository is. So I say, I don't care what it is, you've got to take this right now. And when I do that, 50 girls in the room go at one time, (gasps) and I know I've done something incredibly awkward, but I don't know what it is. So So I'm sitting there trying to figure out and I'm holding the glass of water, and I'm holding the pill, and I'm looking over at the pill bottle, and I see this unfamiliar word, suppository. And as I'm thinking about what have I done, I slowly, it dawns on me that not all medicine is taken orally. <laughs> I mean, it was a disaster. How do you recover from that? They're, they're just looking at me like I'm an idiot. It was a disaster. I mean, I knew enough to somehow pass an EMT test, Right? I could take vitals. I knew what to do if somebody was at an accident, what to do for them. I had no clue what a suppository was. So I just kind of left. It was a disaster. That's my fear for you. That some of you are sitting here and you know a little bit about Jesus. You know Jesus loved people. You know Jesus hung out with sinners and that kind of makes you feel good. And you may even believe in the resurrection or not. You know a little bit about Jesus, but you don't know enough about Jesus to avoid the biggest personal disaster in your life. Because if the resurrection is true, there are major implications for your life. So that's evidence for your mind. But Paul also gives us answers for your heart. For your heart. You see, contrary to popular opinion, Jesus didn't die because he was a religious rebel. Jesus didn't die because he was a controversial teacher. Jesus didn't die because he was a social revolutionary. Jesus died because he claimed to be God. And he claimed that he was dying for you, for you today. And you've got to figure that out. And if he died for you, if the resurrection is true, that means God came for you. But why? Why would he die for me? Why is that necessary? Well, as many of us can figure out, whether you're a skeptic or a believer, we did not come here from nothing. 
Uh, that's ludicrous. Information design doesn't come from nowhere. DNA information does, just doesn't spontaneously happen. We were created by an intelligent designer. We can see that with our eyes if we just look around. God created us. He said he created us in his image. He created us with the ability to know him. And because of that, he gave us standards for right and wrong as we would expect a good and righteous God to do. But love does not force And God did not force us to follow him. He actually gave us free will. That we could willingly love God back or we could do our own thing and not worry about what he said was right and wrong. And it turns out that that gift of free will has has caused every single one of us to do wrong. To do our own thing. To live our own way. And that wrong is actually sin against God. And the other thing, if there is a God, and the way we would imagine him, of course, is that he would be a just God, a righteous, and a God of justice. The prob- and he is. The problem with that, though, is justice demands that wrongs be punished. You cannot have justice if wrongs aren't punished, which is a problem for every single one of us. Because we've all done wrong, and we've all sinned against God. And that's why these books of the Bible are called Gospels. Gospels, just, they just, these stories of Jesus, his life, it's good news is all that means. Good news. The good news is that God kept loving us anyway, and that Jesus Christ, God, left heaven clothed himself in humanity, the God-man. He, he was born, as Zach was saying, in a stable. He laid in a feeding trough. He grew up, and for the last three years of his life, from 30 to 33, he had a public ministry, and Jesus lived a sinless life. And then he willingly was tortured, killed, bled out on a cross, outside Rome, outside Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago. And he did that for you. He died as your substitute. And because he had no sin of his own, he was the only one qualified to do that. And that's what it means. He offers you relationship. He did that for you. If the resurrection is true, he came for you. And he offers you not only forgiveness from your sin, but he offers you cleansing and new life with him. I didn't tell you a while ago that while I was in the mountains, being there for two weeks, that covered a weekend. And in the weekend, the the rangers, they were off. And so they took us to a nearby high mountain campground. I say a campground. There's no buildings, no shelters, no picnic tables. It's just a spot to camp where we kind of relaxed because we were tired for a couple days. And I was dirty. I mean, I was filthy, building trails for, for a week. And actually before that, my family had been camping, and I was already dirty when I started. There were no showers there either. And there was a cold mountain stream. 
And I was there with just two other guys. There were nobody for hundreds of miles. The other two volunteers, they shared a mess and shared a tent, and I was kind of self-contained. And so I went down to this stream, which was a ways, and I knew there was nobody around. Nobody could see me. So I stripped down, and I went into that cold water. It, it wasn't like the movies, how it looks all cool and everything. Just, just picture like a stark white torso tiptoeing you know, down and slipping a little bit and stepping over these rocks that are hurting my feet, but I got in. And when I got in, it was great. It was refreshing. I can still remember in detail the pulsating water just, just blasting, just power washing the dirt and grime off of my body. I can remember specifically being in there and feeling the water. It was coming so fast. Digging the dirt from out from under my fingernails. I mean, it was just powering past me. And I got all in. And when I was, and it was cold. And when I got ready to come out, I felt cleansed. And I felt more physically alive than I had ever felt in my life. That's what God wants for every one of you. He's not just offering forgiveness, He's offering cleansing. He's offering a whole new life like you've never lived it before. A life with him that you can intimately live with God. And that's the most important decision you'll ever make. And it's the truth of the resurrection that should lead you to it. And what I'd like to do today, before I'm done up here, is simply this. I would like us all to just honestly admit where we stand with God. And basically, for all of us in here, me including, there's only four possibilities. And so I'm going to run through these four possibilities, and then I'm going to ask you to honestly admit where you're at. And we'll kind of try to do that in a little bit of a private way. But here they are. First, A. A is you walked in here, you were already a believer. That means there's a point in time where you recognize your sin, and you called on God for forgiveness, and you have a relationship with him. And it's based on his mercy and his grace. And that means you actively follow God. That means that you're probably involved in a Bible-believing church because God never intended you to live the Christian life in isolation. So that's A. You're already a believer when you walked in the doors today. B will be that you're, you're believing for the first time. I mean, you're catching this. You've heard a lot about Jesus. Maybe you've been in church a lot. But it never just came down to, hey, you've got to make a decision for Christ. And that means you have to come to the understanding that we do not earn our salvation in any way. It's a gift. Our salvation is not based on how we live, how good of a provider we are, how nice we are to our family, how, how nice we are to our coworkers. None of that scores us any points with, with regard to forgiveness. Not even churchy stuff. Not even coming to church. Not getting baptized. Not even being a member of a, church, a particular church like Grace. That doesn't do it at all for salvation. One thing, accepting God's gift, trusting in Christ alone, Belief, faith, and following him. And you're ready to do that. That's B. C is, okay, you're hearing this and you're thinking about it and you get that it's important. You don't think you're ready today to take that kind of a plunge. Feels awkward. Not sure you want to dive in. I get that. C, you're considering it. 
And then D, just for honesty, not interested. Don't want to become a Christian. Don't want to become a follower of Christ. Those are the four categories. Are you ready? Let's bow our heads. I don't want to embarrass anybody. I'm looking around. Everybody here seated, your heads are bowed. And I'm just going to ask you, raise your hand when I do ABC, when I get to your category. So the first category is A. You walked in here, you are confident that you're a believer today based on what Christ has done and that alone. Just raise your hands up. Hold them up for a minute. Raise them up. Thank you. you put them down. Okay, category B. You came in, you didn't really have that confidence, but you're realizing if this is just a matter of me trusting, of me calling out to God for forgiveness, I'm in. Hold it up. If you're a B, hold it up. Several of you. One. Yeah, right over here. Several in this section. Yeah, all over. Just hold them up for a minute. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You can put them down. Or C. You're considering it. Just don't know if you're ready right now. Just hold them up. I'm not going to embarrass you. You can trust me. Just pop them up there and say, yeah, I'm considering. I'm just not quite there. Thank you. Thanks. And then the last, it's, it's D. It's just saying, hey, in all honesty, Kevin, if you want me to raise my hand, this would be the time. Just put them up. I'll not embarrass you. Thank you. I see it. Put them up and just write back down. While our heads are bowed, I, I want to pray. And this is for the B's and maybe for some of the C's. And this is just a prayer of salvation. Scripture says if, when we call on God understanding our sin and what Christ has done for us, we call on God in faith that he'll come into our life. He'll forgive us. He'll cleanse us. He'll come into our hearts, our lives forever. And so I just want to lead you in a prayer that expresses that to God, that calls out to God in that way. And so just pray this prayer. You don't have to do it out loud. I don't want to embarrass you. God knows your every thought. So you can just think through this, put it in your own words, but something like this. Make this yours. Father God in heaven, I, I admit, I, I understand that I've done wrong. And, and because it's wrong, I deserve punishment. But God, I also understand that you love me anyway. And you made a way where I could be forgiven without violating your justice. And I'm putting my, my trust, my faith in Jesus right now that his death, burial, and resurrection was for me. And God, I have nothing to bring. I'm just accepting the love that you're extending. I'm accepting your invitation. God, thank you for loving me. Thanks for dying for me. Thanks for saving me. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you. Thanks for this day. Lord, we thank you for those who uh, responded to, to this invitation. And we know it's all you. Help us to live, be more like you. In Christ's name.